A few weeks ago, I saw on uh, social media this story somebody had posted um, that they had planned a trip overseas for themselves and their family, and they had gotten everything ready to go. They had gotten everything lined out. They had gotten all their clothes packed. They had got their accommodations paid for, their flights paid for, and they went to get their passports as they were getting ready for the trip the next morning, and they discovered that their passports were expired. I know, I know. And so the story was them in the middle of phone calls and emails and trying to get a hold of somebody to see what options there were. It stressed me out so much that I had to stop watching. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they went on the trip. I don't know if they figured it out. I have no idea. But you do learn a lot about who a person is through difficulty yourself and other people. You learn about who you are through difficulty. You may think like, oh yeah, I'm a pretty relaxed, laid back person. Well, what happens when you realize your passport's expired the night before your trip? Or you may think like, yeah, I get along with lots of people. Well, what happens when you find someone who doesn't like you or doesn't agree with you? Or you may think, yeah, I'm a peaceful, easygoing person, but what happens when you have children and they do things that you don't like? We're gonna explore a weird idea today, but I think it's important. What do we learn about the character of God when he goes through difficulty? And God goes through difficulty? What do you mean? He's God. He's got everything. What what do you mean? What do we learn about the character of God when he is challenged, when people disagree with him, when he has people push back on on what he wants and what he wants to happen in the world? What do we learn about the character of God? And we're going to explore that uh, today in in this series. What do you you see when you scratch the surface uh, of the character of God? Earlier this week, I was thinking, man, you know, we're going to do a little Bible study in the sermon. I better balance it out with something that's, that's, you know, not Bible study. And then I thought, that's so ridiculous. We're at church. We can have a little Bible study, right? We can read the Bible. That's okay. We don't have to balance it out. Uh, So we're going to do a little Bible study today, and it is going to be worth it, and you're going to enjoy it, and it's going to be great, and you're going to take it, all right? So Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, the the book of Exodus is one of those books that we do sometimes rush through because so much of it are what feel like tedious, maybe irrelevant rules. Uh, They're God saying, downloading to Moses, here's what I want my people to do. And it's stuff about Sabbaths and it's stuff about covenants and it's stuff about ceremonies. And we just, you know, we got to get through our reading and we just kind of glaze through some of that stuff and it's hard. But what the problem is, is that woven throughout the story of Exodus are these amazing moments of God interacting with his people that we kind of gloss over too because we don't see it in the text because we're so you know quick to, to rush through it. So we're going to try to draw that story out. Not that the, the ceremony and the laws are unimportant, but we're going to skip over some of that stuff so we can draw this story together from several parts of the book of Exodus. Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. They're on the mountain, Mount Sinai. The Hebrew people are at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Same group, by the way. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So you should feel good about the things that I've done to bring you here. You saw that. You were witnesses. You saw the miraculous. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Uh, possession. The whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. 
So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. All right, now the everything are those tedious rules that sometimes we skip over, but the people were like, we're in, we've got this, we will do it. Everything the Lord has said, we got you back. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, this is a huge moment, and we miss it because it's in the middle of all this other stuff. It's a huge moment, and I wish the Bible had a soundtrack so that you, the music would begin to swell when there were important parts that you should get excited about, because if that were the case, then this section of Scripture would have this, like, great horn section over some strings. There'd be symbols, like when Luke and Han Solo walk into the throne room, and it's just, like, loud and celebratory. That's what the, the music of this text would be like. And this moment is going to be referenced thousands of times throughout scripture what we just read they're going to come back to it over and over again because it's the exchanging of the vows it's the day the people said i do it's the signing of the papers it's the serious handshake that says this is the agreement moses is representing israel god is representing god do you god take these people god says i do do you people take this god the people say we do Done. Fireworks, confetti, music. This is the moment. This is when you hear the word covenant, this is the moment you should think about. When we read the Bible and we're like, oh, there's a covenant. This is it. This is the covenant. Now, the first rule, the first agreement of the covenant, the first thing that God says, this is what I want you to do in this covenant. Verse uh, Exodus 20, this is just the next chapter over. Slide over one chapter, one verse. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Important phrase, hold on to it in your mind, out of the land of slavery. So you, guys, you guys were kind of nobodies before I came along, and, you know, I, I made you somebody. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We're familiar with that, right? No other gods. You shall not make for yourself an image. So number one rule, number one thing he says after this agreement, after this covenant takes place, no other gods, all right? Are we good? No other gods? Don't be flirting with other gods. Don't have pictures of other gods around the house. No texting other gods on the side. This is a committed monotheistic relationship, all right? Everybody, we're clear. No other gods. And they said, sure, that sounds great to us. A few months ago, I guess, or last year probably, I had to get my passport renewed. And it's kind of like they sell you six hot dogs and eight hot dog buns. And you're like, shouldn't they coordinate on this? But with passport pictures, you have to buy like four passport pictures, but you're getting one passport. So I had these three extra pictures I didn't know what to do with. I don't know. It felt a little weird to just throw them away. I mean, but I don't want a picture of myself to look at. Like, what do I look like today? Oh, there, there we go. So I thought I would just put it in the dashboard of my wife's car. So right in front of the speedometer. So every time she's speeding, she can look up. Oh, there's Patrick. You know, every, she's getting pulled over for that ticket. There's Patrick saying, I told you so. She's an aggressive driver. If you borrow her car, you get in our, her, our car. My picture, non-smiling, because you're not supposed to smile for passport pictures, I've been told, is still there on the dashboard. If, if one day I got in her car, slid into the driver's seat, and there was some picture of like some old boyfriend next to mine, would be a little confused, first of all. I would be like, what's the, what's going on? Why, who, who's the, oh, you know, old flame. He was really cute, wasn't he? I'd be like, ah, 
I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with you having, but your picture's still there, Patrick. Well, yeah, but I, I, I don't want the other guy's picture there. I don't want that. And that's what God's saying. I don't want anybody else. I don't want you to have altars with other gods. I don't want any of that. Don't, have, don't, don't celebrate the other gods' holidays. I just want one God, all right? That's me, one God. And we, that makes sense. So Moses writes down all the details, and that's the tedious part people tend to skip through. We call it the Torah, the, the, the law. And then, four chapters later, when, verse 3, Exodus 24, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, that's all that stuff that we skip over, they responded with one voice, and they said, everything the Lord has said to do, we will do. Everything? Yeah, everything. Including the part about no other gods? Yes, definitely no other gods. Verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And this is kind of cool because that's the first reference to the writing of the Bible in the Bible right there. So Moses goes back up the mountain. God says, we just got to go over some more details. I need to tell you specifically about the ceremonies and what days. We just got to work out the details. But everything else is agreed to. So Moses goes back up to the mountain. People stay at the bottom. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, this is Moses' brother, and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. He probably fell off a cliff. He got eaten by a mountain lion. We don't know. He's gone. It's been 40 days. Who knows? I mean, this is a dangerous place. So we've got to have another God. Listen, this is the first thing they do after explicitly agreeing they would not do this. This is the very first thing that they do. And they're like, well, sad. Sorry about Moses. Sorry about that Yahweh guy. But we got to move on. Verse 4, so Aaron took what they handed to him, all the jewelry that they pulled out of their ears and their noses, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, this is an important phrase again, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This isn't just bad. This is bad, bad. This is groom trying to date a bridesmaid at the wedding reception. Bad, right? What advice would you give to that bride? Run! Get out of there! I read a few uh, months ago about a teenager who beat up an elderly woman, and you read the article, and the teenager was the grandson, the elderly woman was a grandmother. That's bad. I mean, it's bad to beat somebody up. It's bad to beat your grandmother up. It's disobedience and disloyalty combined into one. This is the first thing God said not to do, and it's the first thing they did. Yeah. It's crazy. Liam happened to have pulled out this pictorial Bible that has these book overviews, and he happened to look at Exodus. I wasn't talking about around the house. You know, I wasn't referencing my sermon. He's talking about F Exodus, and he literally says this. this is gonna, I, I was worried about telling you this because you guys are going to think I made it up. But he literally said, he was like, whoa, the Israelite people disobeyed quick out of the blue. And I was like, yeah, buddy, they did. I was like, that's my whole sermon tomorrow. So you don't have to come to church. That's the whole thing. That's awesome. That's amazing. And so I'm like, I'm kind of curious, you know, what does a nine-year-old think of this kind of stuff? What's going on in his brain about all this stuff happening? And I say, so why do you think they did that? What was the problem? And this was his answer. So wise. Ready? His answer was, well, that's humans for you. Yeah. And you know what? He's right. 
He's right, because the tendency is for us with historical bias to look back on those people and say, what is wrong with them? They're terrible, they're awful, they're rotten. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is for us to look to the character of God and say, what is God going to do? What is God going to do in the face of betrayal? How is God going to respond to this challenge? If we scratch the surface of God's character, what do we find? And this is so cool. God is exactly who he said he was. You start digging into the character of God, and as you get deeper and deeper, you just find more God. You start digging into God's love, and as you get down uh, subterranean depths of God's love, you know what you find? More love, more grace, more mercy. He is who he is all the way down. That's what his name means. His name is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. If you peel off layers, you're just going to find more of the same. That's not true for us. I've got some patience, but you peel off enough layers and the patience runs out. I've got some ability to exercise self-control, but you put me in the right circumstances, that's gone. God is who he is all the way down to the very core. This is so good to know. I told you before about the girl who thought good riddance was a fancy way of saying farewell to someone, right? Now, nine times out of ten, that's not going to be a problem, except for the fact that she worked in a, as a receptionist in an office, in a doctor's office. So the customers would leave, and she would be like very cheerfully, good riddance, you know, like... And they would be like, okay. And finally, somebody had to pull her aside and say, what are you doing? What is going on? And she explained to them, oh, I'm just, you know, wishing them well in this really fancy way. I do not think that means what you think it means. That's not, that's not what good riddance means. You can say mean things with a nice tone, but the actual definition of the word still matter. And I want you to see something. It is in the middle of that conflict, that betrayal, that God reveals Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Because Moses goes back up to him and says, God, I'm really sorry about these people. Like, what, what should we do? Can you, can you be God? And this is what he says. This is what we've been reading for, for the last four weeks. And God, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, I am who I am. I am who I am. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Abounding, and this is what we want to focus in on today, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Um, and I want you to just stop for a minute there. That love, this verse and the last verse, is a specific word we're going to look at, and it's not really love. It's just we don't have a good translation for it, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yeah, good thing he does because people had just royally messed up. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We'll get into that a little bit more. And of course, we gave you some context last week about that particular phrase. God's character. God is who he is. When it comes to this idea, this word, this concept, the authors of scripture go to the same word Hundreds of times, every time they're confronted with this question, what is God like? They pull this word off the shelf, the same word. And it's a hard 
well, there's no English translation for this word. You have to be a native Hebrew speaker to get the full meaning. So we have to use entire phrases to describe what the authors are trying to tell us about God. So the NIV here uses the word love, but that's just one little aspect of this word. The New American Standard, I think, uses steadfast love. King James uses mercy. You can see they're beginning to get at all these different ideas of what this word is. It's impossible to translate. In fact, there are uh, whole books, academic books, written on this word. So if you're interested in digging a little bit more, you can read this book called The Word Hesed in the Hebrew Bible. So that's the word, Hesed. It's actually a harsh K, Hesed. Yeah, if you want to, don't say that in public, but Hesed in the Hebrew Bible. So this, this book is, is the definitive edition. You, you notice how much it is? $206. Do you know why it's so expensive? Because you're going to sell like three of these things. Nobody, who's buying this book? And so they're like, we got to mark it up. Somebody, now I know you can get a used one. It's a little cheaper. I get that. But I wanted to read you the back cover of why this word is so hard to translate. Okay. This is just the back cover of the word, uh, of the book about the word. It's just about a word. It's a book about a word. The author achieves a new degree of semantic refinement based on meticulous quantitative analysis of, of distribution, collocations, parallels, and centigems. How many of those words did you know? I, I knew about half of them. I only know about half the words that describe this book. That's how deep and detailed this concept is. Chesed. This is the word that the authors of Scripture pulled out to say, this is what God's like. Chesed. Um, and you can practice if you want to at home. You've got to get a little bit in the throat. Chesed. But it's a powerful combination of promise and affection and kindness and loyalty. It's all those ideas melded into one. But if the volume is turned up to 11 on all of them. So it's not just like a promise. It's not just I promise. It's like I pinky swear. I cross my heart. I hope to die. I swear in a stack of Bibles and on my mother's grave, even though she has not passed yet. That's, that's like the kind of promise it is. It's like a deep promise. It's not just affection. It's like it's, it's, it's over the top affection. It's like, whoa, that's too much. It's, it's a lot. It's not just kindness, it's, it's generous kindness. It's looking at that person and saying, how can I just, just overwhelm them with kindness? It's not just loyalty, it's dogged, never give up loyalty on someone. It's, um, it's, a, it's the love, the chesed of a grandparent who loves their grandchild so deeply that no matter what that grandchild is going through, they're, they're sending them that 20 bucks in the birthday card, they're calling them, they're praying for them constantly, even when the parents are like, I don't know. There's no hope. The grandparent, you know, that's the kind of love, that deep, affectionate, promising, loyal love. Chesed. It's, um, it's a spouse who just tenderly cares for their husband or wife after a traumatic brain injury and maybe even a coma. Every once in a while you hear a story about someone who is married to someone and they go into a coma for, for decades and a spouse dutifully, carefully, lovingly tends to them for decades. That's chesed. That's what that is. Hesed is, is, is faithfulness or, or loyalty like a, like a Vikings fan. Even though you don't get anything in return. <laughs> you know? Just, yeah. Just year after year. I'm, I'm there for you guys. It's, that's Hesed. Um, out of Africa, best picture uh, winner in 1985. This is totally not in my demographic of, uh, of movies, so I've not seen this, but I've read a lot about it, and, and in particular, one scene that I want to talk with you about. 
I was probably eight when this movie came out, so I was not into any of this romance love story stuff. But um, this is very, very loosely based on a true story. So uh, I don't know if you can tell from the cover here, but Meryl Streep and Robert Redford have a little romance thing happening there. You know, surprise, surprise. Sorry, I'm going to spoil the movie for you today, so if you didn't want to know that, just plug your ears for a minute. So they fall in love, right? And in, in this one particular scene, she hints at marriage. She, she, she kind of skirts around the issue and talks about marriage, and he knows what she's getting at. And finally, he says this line that I think has become so common and prevalent in our society today. He says, do you think I will love you more because of a piece of paper? Now, we'll pull the audience here. If, if you know a couple and everything is trending toward marriage and one party wants to get married and the other party says, do you, do you really think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? What advice would you give? The, yes. Get out of there. Or if you're in a wheelchair, roll away. Right, Jerry? Get gone. Get gone. That is ridiculous, but it has just become like almost second nature in romantic relationships in our society today. I mean, it's become such a common sentiment. But listen, the desire to avoid legally obligating oneself to someone that we claim to love should create... That's not a red flag. That's like the sirens are going off. That's bad news. That's like, get out of that. Because chesed, love, deep, loyal love, wants to be obligated to the person, the object of their affection. It doesn't want to distance themselves. It wants to paint themselves in a relational corner with that person to be there for them, to be with them. That's what that is. You know what happens in the movie? Here's the real spoiler part. Turns out Robert Redford is also dating somebody else on the side. Yeah, and then he dies in a plane crash. I want you to see this word real quick in other places in Scripture that are really valuable to understand the, the broad scope of this concept. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, goodness and chesed will follow me all the days of my life. David, reflecting on the character of God. This is, this is a truth. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 is so good. It is because of the Lord's chesed that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. You wake up and you see the sunrise and you're reminded there is a God who loves me so much he created the sunrise to be beautiful so that I could enjoy it. There's no other practical reason for a sunrise to be enjoyable other than a loving creator who wants you to look at that and say, oh, there is a God who loves me. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 says, You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show chesed. The book of Ruth, many of you love the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful book. It's literally four-chapter illustration of loyal, faithful, steadfast love and affection. Ruth to Naomi and then uh, Boaz to Ruth. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's the whole point of the book is to help us understand this loyal, affectionate love that God has for his people. It's hard to trust people sometimes. You guys ever been burned by somebody? Yeah, you know, there's a range, right? They don't show up on time to, they really stab you in the back like they worship other gods after they just said they wouldn't. When I was in high school, I, I was the dare in a game of truth or dare. Um, I wasn't playing the game. I was just off doing something else. And this group of cheerleaders were playing truth or dare, and I was the dare. The dare was make Patrick think that you like him. And she was very effective. I was convinced that she liked me. 
I was convinced that she liked me for 24 hours, and I stayed up most of the night thinking about like, whoa, okay, Patrick, you, uh, you're the kind of guy that can get a cheerleader. Wow, okay, you, you didn't realize that till your senior year of high school, but senior year of high school, and, and it just felt like in my spirit, there was this little, little tiny growth, little tiny blossoming of confidence and hope and like, oh, who I am in the world. And then 24 hours later, I was informed that, oh, sorry, that was a dare. <laughs> You're, you were the dare. So, so not only am I not the type of guy who could get a cheerleader to like them, I'm the type of guy who it is so preposterous for a cheerleader like that it would actually be a dare in a game of truth or dare. Good, clean, teenage fun, right? Nothing that a few <laughs> decades of therapy can't fix. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know if that I come across this way, but I do sometimes have a hard time trusting people. And, and, and related to incidents like that, particularly because you and I, we have a voice in our heads that say, you know, nobody likes you. You're a failure. You're not very good. You're not very good at your job. You're pretty ugly. People are looking at you because of how ugly you are, or you got snot in your nose or something in your teeth. Like, yeah. And then every once in a while, that voice in our head is confirmed by some real-life circumstance. And that's really hard, you know, as humans to deal with that. It's hard to begin to trust. It, it's hard to trust God. It really is. We talk about it as if it's an easy thing and we sing about the faithful love of God, but it's hard to trust God because many of you live in circumstances that make you wonder if God is really faithful. Does he really love? Does he really care about the details and the particulars of my life? It's hard to trust God. And so I think most of us live in this weird tension where we think, yes, God is good, but with an asterisk. God is good. Sure, he loves people. He just loves lovable people. He forgives sin, but he forgives other smaller sin. What I've done, God probably can't really do, do much with. God is kind uh, to people that deserve kindness. That, that's who he's kind to. God is loyal, provided you don't disappoint him. And so many of us are suspicious that we aren't the kinds of people that God could show that chesed loyal, promising, affectionate love toward. That's the voice in our heads. But the thing is, God has been trying to show us over and over that he is without exception, without asterisks, with, without clause, without technicality, without condition, without disappointment. He is a God who delights in showing deep, loyal love to us. He's a God that delights in it. In fact, the very first thing he did with this people who had totally betrayed him was say, you know what? I want you to know that I am committed to this relationship regardless of the way you act. Nice try trying to get out of it, but I'm sticking with you. Not to say he wasn't upset, but you were committed. There is no asterisk in this love that God has for us. There's no exception. There's no qualifiers. There's no, God's not trying to get out on a technicality. I mean, there's a, there, there's a million ways God is trying to do this. You could literally open up your Bible. You could literally go to some random book of the Bible, and you would see God trying to beat like a drum this truth into our minds that he deeply loves us no matter what. Almost, this is almost random, but I thought, man, I just got to read a verse that, that illustrates this. And so there's several I could have chosen, but I chose one out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. L listen to this. This is, this is so good. God says stuff like this constantly. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. 
Remember last week we talked about the anger of God. That was fun, right? Just as the rest. But God being rich in chesed, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word there. God being rich in mercy. God being rich in chesed because of his great love for which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, when we were opposed to God, even at that point, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up and he's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has been shouting this truth at us. He's given us example and example and example of this reality lived out in lives of people, and we're still like, God, I'm not sure. You know why communion's so beautiful? I mean, I know the little prepackaged bread is so delicious, right? The juice is so wonderful. But you know what's really valuable about communion? Is we are being reminded that we serve a God that upholds both ends of the covenant. Because we have completely failed, and communion reminds us that not only does God hold up his end of the bargain, but he holds up our end as well. That's what communion is about. You know that, right? It's God keeping both ends of the deal because we couldn't do it. And God says, I've got you. In fact, I've got you to the degree I will send my son to keep your end of the deal because you couldn't do it. That's the kind of God we serve. Man. The more fully we believe this idea about God, it's not just an academic idea. It should be a, a lived reality. The more fully that we walk into this definition of the, the chesed of God, the more we can be people of calm in a world of anxiety because we believe in this boundless grace and love of God. The more we can be people of grace in a culture of condemnation. The more we can be people of peace in, in, in just a world of outrage, outrage. People are so angry all the time. You don't have to buy into that because of the character of God. The more we can be people of generosity in an economy of selfishness because you serve a God who will keep your end of the deal even when you can't. It's those things that help us deeply, deeply appreciate the character of God and to live that out. When we're at our worst, God is at his best, exemplifying the character traits that he's said are part of who he is from the beginning of time.